We are starting the book of James tonight, and last week when we closed out Galatians, I made just kind of an offhand statement that I thought James was sort of the opposite of Galatians, and I really should have clarified that. I hope no one thought that what I meant was James and Galatians disagree with each other, because they don't. Uh, they are both the Word of God, even if they're written by different human authors, and they agree. It's just that they stress different things. Uh, this is a silly analogy, but some of y'all may remember, if you watched a lot of TV in the 70s and 80s, those commercials where a person would be walking along carrying a chocolate bar, and another person would be walking along carrying a jar of peanut butter, because that's what normal people do, right? Just carry an open jar of peanut butter. And they'd run into each other. And they'd say, hey, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. Hey, you got peanut butter in my chocolate. And then they'd taste it and say, hey, this is fantastic. Reese's peanut butter cups. Let's do it. So I, I think about that when I think about Galatians and James in that they balance each other out. They're both the truth. They're both good. Uh, but they balance each other out. And I, I can't prove this. I'm not God. God didn't tell me this. It's just my speculation that God inspired both books as a way of balancing one another out. And here's what I mean. Galatians is about freedom in Christ and how we are not under the law. We don't have to uh, keep a long ledger of rules and say, okay, how am I doing on this one? How am I doing on this one? And so on down the line uh, in terms of that's how we get right with God. No, that's not the way it works. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith in God uh, is more significant than an attempt at obedience to the law. So that's what Galatians is all about. James, on the other hand, is about how there are works that have to be done in order to prove you have saving faith. In other words, yes, Galatians says faith is enough to save you. James comes back and says yes, but if there are not works that accompany that faith, it's probably not saving faith. But you have to, you have to see it in that way. You can if you're of the mind to do so, if you just read, because I know Christians who James is their favorite book in the Bible. And I think the reason they love James so much is because it's so practical. It's, there's very little theology in it. There's very little uh, doctrine in it. It's just straight out practical. Do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And people love it because if you're a certain kind of person like me, you like that. You like being told, here's how you do it. And so I know people who you talk to them and you're like, okay, you reading the word, word lately? Yeah, well, what are you reading? Well, I'm back in James. I just can't get out of James. Well, the problem with that is, some of y'all know, or maybe some of you are then. The problem with that is if all you do is read James, you can start, even though James doesn't teach this, you can start to get the impression that that's what a, a godly person is, is a person who keeps a long list of rules, that that's how we get right with God. Uh, Galatians is there to say, oh, no, no, no. That's not how we get right with God. Those works prove our salvation. They don't give us salvation. Another way of saying it is, because of saving grace, no matter how hard you try to obey the commands of God's word, you're not going to make God love you any more than he already does. And no matter how bad you fail, he's not going to love you any less than he already does. And yet... Because he has sent his son to die for us, because Jesus, God in human flesh, has given his life for us, then if we're really saved, we're going to want to obey him. We're going to want to please him. We're going to want to live lives that, that shine light on his glory because he's done so much for us. And if we don't have that desire in our hearts to do these things, then maybe our faith is not saving faith at all. Maybe it's just a sort of spiritual fire insurance. 
right? Oh, I'll just pray this prayer just in case, just in case there's something to it. So that's how I believe those two books balance each other out. So let's start with verse one, and then we'll talk, we'll stop after verse one and, and give some comments about the, uh, of introduction to the book itself. Uh, but we're only going to cover the first eight verses tonight. James 1, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So first of all, James. Who was James? James, is, it's pretty widely accepted by every scholar I've ever read that, it was, that James was the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus, according to the Gospels, Gospels don't talk a lot about his extended family, but what they do say is that he had... Uh, at least four brothers and some sisters. We don't know the sisters' names. We know the names of the brothers were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Yes, Jesus had a brother named Judas. Interesting, isn't it? Now, here's what we know about James. We know that according to John 7, 5, he and the other brothers did not believe in Jesus initially, that they mocked him. They said, if you're, if you're this great big Messiah, why don't you go to Jerusalem? Why don't you stop hanging around here in the backwater of Galilee? Why don't you go to the Jerusalem during the, during the feast and prove yourself to the people? And, and, and it said, because even his brothers did not believe in him, which had to be heartbreaking for Jesus. And, and again, you can imagine as someone in James's position, how hard it would be to believe that your brother could be the Messiah could much less the son of God. Uh, you probably grew up with a little sense of jealousy toward your brother. As I said recently, you probably heard all your life, why can't you be more like Jesus? I mean, that's, that's quite, an, that's quite a, a, an image to live up to. And then at the age of 30 or so, Jesus leaves the family, leaves being a carpenter, and, and goes off to be this wandering homeless preacher. When it's the expectation in Jewish society that he'll take care of his mother because he's the oldest. That was the, old, the job of the oldest son. He's supposed to be providing for his mom, taking care of her needs. He's supposed to be the head of the family. Well, he's just walked off on all those responsibilities. At least this is the way uh, James probably saw things. And meanwhile, they're hearing these reports from distant cities that the religious leaders have uh, turned their backs on him, have declared him a, a, a traitor to the people, a heretic, maybe even demon-possessed. So I guess it's not surprising that, that James and the other brothers resented Jesus for a while. We, we do know also, however, that Acts 1.14 says after Jesus' ascension, the brothers were part of the church. And as I said recently on a Sunday morning, anybody who thinks that they came in after Jesus left so they could take over his position of power, you don't understand that was the worst possible time to declare yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. He'd been crucified, which meant that the Romans had declared him an enemy of the state, a dangerous man. The Jews, uh, the, the authorities of the Jews hated him too and, and thought he was a heretic. So for you to stand up at that moment and say, yes, my brother was the son of God, that made your life immediately worse, not better. There was no financial or other kind of uh, earthly reason for James and the other brothers to believe in Jesus. The question is, what led to their belief? What changed their mind? 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says that Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection. So that could have been it. It could have been that, James, that Jesus just appeared to his brothers and said, I'm back from the dead. However, I don't know of any other 
person Jesus appeared to in resurrected form who didn't already believe in him. There were lots of folks that Jesus could have gone to. He could have gone to Caiaphas, could have gone to Pilate, could have gone to all manner of people who didn't believe in him and said, look at me, I am who I said I was. But he didn't do that. I'm inclined to believe, and again, this is me. God didn't whisper in my ear, so you just take that for what it's worth. I don't think that, I think G, that James believed in Jesus before the resurrection, sometime before. My theory, and it's just a theory, is that it was sometime between Good Friday and the time Jesus first appeared to him. That James uh, heard about Jesus dying on the cross. He finally understood something about what Jesus had come to do and became a believer. And then Jesus came and confirmed it through his appearance after his resurrection. What we know for sure is James wasn't a believer, then he was a believer, and Jesus appeared to him. By the time we get to Acts chapter 12, it's obvious that he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. Peter, who started off as the leader of the Jerusalem church, is in jail, and he gets sprung from jail by an angel, and he goes up to the house where the people are gathered praying for him, and he knocks on the door, and the little servant girl comes and says, oh, I think it's Peter, but forgets to let him in. It's one of the more comical stories in Acts. And then he finally let him in. He says, hey, I got to leave, but tell James and the other brothers that I'm, that I'm okay. So the, the implication is James is the leader now. He's definitely the leader in Acts 15 when they have the Jerusalem council and they're deciding, as we talked about in Galatians, is it okay for Gentiles to come in and be disciples of Jesus without first becoming Jews? James is the one who presides over that meeting. James is the one who renders, his words carry the day, so to speak. And he says, okay, I've heard both sides. Here's what I think. And the church says, we're with you. Uh, Church tradition, now here's where we get away from Scripture, church tradition calls him James the Just. So people in the, in the hundreds, in the 200s AD, called him James the Just because of his strong faith and because he apparently was very uh, willing to sacrifice for the cause of the gospel. Josephus, the, the historian who lived back then, records that uh, that James was martyred in 61 AD by his fellow Jews during a time uh, between governors when things were a little chaotic. So obviously this letter was written sometime before 61, which means it was written within a decade or so of Galatians, one of the earlier books in the New Testament. So that's who James was, the half-brother of Jesus, leader of the Jerusalem church. He calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ which is significant on two levels. Number one, he doesn't trade on his family status. He doesn't say, listen to me because I'm the brother of our Lord and Savior. He says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. His shared blood with Jesus doesn't matter as much as the shed blood of Jesus. Does that make sense? doesn't matter that I'm related to him. What matters is he died for me. But also, and, and I, I, I constantly say this, that he can see himself as the slave of his brother. His life belongs to his brothers. It, I, I will follow him until the day I die. That should tell you something. Because any of us who have siblings know we may love our brother, we may love our sister, but we don't obey them. Right? We don't submit to them. And, and Lord help them if they try to make us submit to them. Right? There's going to be 
there's going to be ugliness in that point. So uh, that should tell you something about the change in James's life, that he's willing to call himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the word doulos, bond slave. He says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes. 12 tribes was a reference to Israel. So is he just talking about Israelites? Well, no, this is a Christian letter. This is written to believers in Jesus. So what, it, what he's obviously saying is he's equating the modern day church to Israel, the 12 tribes, the church. No, we, are, we are the new Israel in James's mind. We are we're the inheritors of that commission to be uh, a royal nation, a, a chosen people, uh, a, a peculiar people, as they used to say. Right, that we are priests and, and, and prophets of the Lord. And then he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Uh, what, the, what is that word all about? Uh, there's a, the word that I think is Latin that they use was the diaspora. Uh, that was what they call, what they said about Jews who had been scattered. So for all those hundreds of years, there was no Israel. And there were a couple of different times where there was no Israel. During the exile in the Old Testament days, and then between about 70 AD and 1948 AD, there was no Israel, no political Israel. So everybody lived wherever they could find a place to live. And this is why you have Jews all around the world instead of just the Holy Land. That's called the diaspora, the dispersion. That's the people of God wherever they are. So James is writing to, this is the reason I'm going to this length. The letters of Paul are very different, right? Because they say, I'm writing to the church in Galatia, or I'm writing to the church in Ephesus, or the church in Corinth. So you can look on a map and say, oh, okay. James is not writing to a particular church. He's writing a letter that's meant to be passed around from place to place, wherever believers can be found. And he's saying, the church that has been scattered. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, remember, the church originally was based in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches his great sermon on the day of Pentecost and thousands of people get saved. And then it goes on from there. And every day they gather in the temple and they worship and they gather from house to house and they eat meals together and they listen to the apostles teaching and they pray and they, and they minister to others. And then all of a sudden what happens? A certain guy named Saul of Tarsus gets involved. Stephen gets martyred, first Christian martyr. That gets Saul's blood up, and he starts ravaging the church. And eventually the people, the, the Christians in Jerusalem said, okay, we can either stay here and all pretty much die, or we can scatter. And so they scattered. So the theory a lot of people have is that James wrote sometime during that period of time. Maybe even before Paul was saved, but I, I think probably not. But eventually he wrote to, peep, to Christians who were scattered all across the Mediterranean world, and of course, probably not knowing that someday Christians would be scattered all around the world. He's writing to us. And the reason why he's writing in the immediate sense, think about it. It's, it's one thing to have the whole Christian movement in one city, even a big city like Jerusalem, because you, you can know each other. You can keep tabs on each other. You, you know what preaching you're hearing, right? You're, you're hearing the preaching of the apostles. But after the church had to scatter, the church was cut off from that. 
You didn't hear the preaching of the apostles. You weren't around most Christians. For all of a sudden, you were in places where you might be, you and maybe two or, two or three other families, the only Christians in that whole city. And so James was worried. Are they going to keep following Christ like they should? See, our, our faith can be so fragile, not because there's anything wrong with Christianity, but because there's something wrong with us. It's so easy for us to get twisted and, and, and turned aside and to, to make the gospel into something that it's not, and to decide, you know, if this is okay for those people, it's okay for me too. So James is writing to tell them, remember, this is real faith. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Wherever you're living, this is what it looks like in a practical sense. And so we are like those first readers of, Jesus, of James's letter. We live in a world where Jesus and his teachings are rarely heard or thought of. You talk to people uh, increasingly in our culture, there is still a, an understanding that there was a man named Jesus, that he did some great things. There may be, even be some who are aware of some of the stories, but there's no longer this cultural sense in our society that, okay, Jesus was the son of God and here's how you should live. That doesn't exist anymore. If you don't believe me, spend some time on a college campus or a high school campus and just talk to people. Or go knocking on doors, door to door, and ask, what do you know about Christianity? What do you know about the gospel? What do you know about Jesus Christ? And you're going to find that we are increasingly living in a what the scholars call a post-Christian culture. So what's going to happen to us? Book of James is a good checkup for us to, to check into at least once a year and say, am I still living out real faith? doesn't mean, am I saved or not? I believe once you're saved, you're always saved. Jesus isn't going to let go of you. But have I started to take God's grace for granted? Have I started to uh, betray my Lord by living for myself, but calling it Christian? Because I still have those beliefs in the back of my head. James is about, let, let's talk about what real faith looks like, the works that prove saving faith. So that's and I promise every verse is not going to take that long to explain. But that's, that's your introduction to the book of James. Uh, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And some of you are like, okay, I'm out. I'm, I'm not, I don't do that. But we'll get to that in a moment. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the first aspect of real faith that James comes out come, uh, starts with, right out of the box, is how do you face trials? How do you face trials? It, it is an unmistakable reality of the scriptures. The Bible talks so much about here's what you do when hard times hit. Jesus, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We love the second part of that. We don't love the first part. The Bible talks so much about here's how you handle trials. Here's what trials mean. Here's what pain and suffering does to you. Here's how you respond. Well, isn't it obvious that in every age we as Christians can expect there will be difficulties, there will be trials, it's going to happen. When he says trials of various kinds, 
It could mean lots of things. He doesn't, he's not specific. It, it could mean persecution for the faith. To this day, there are Christians around the world who are experiencing real persecution. I don't mean the kind of stuff that we complain about, like, oh, I heard somebody, a comedian making fun of me, or uh, you know, my, my co-worker was, you know, said some things that I thought put my faith in a bad light. That's the kind of persecution right now that most of us face. It's not really worthy of being called persecution. But people around the world are facing real threats to life and property and, and livelihood because they are believers. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. There's also what I would call suffering in God's permissive will. So here, here's my theology when it comes to suffering. I don't believe that God is up there causing every bad thing that happens. In fact, I think most bad things that happen, God did not directly cause them. In fact, I think if God caused a bad thing to happen to you for punishment, he lets you know it. Because that's what I see in Scripture. And that's what logic says to me. If, if when my kids were little, I just went around whacking them with a belt and never told them, this is because you did this, then I would be an abuser. I wouldn't be a parent. God is not an abusive father. If he's going to deal out judgment in some physical form in your life, I believe you're going to know, oh, this is why this is happening. Otherwise, it doesn't do any good. So I believe most of the suffering we experience is not something that God directly caused, but it is something he permitted for whatever reason. That's part of these trials as well. That's health problems. That's losing your job. That's going through relational struggles. That's any number of problems you can mention. Uh, and then third, there's temptation to sin. The word trial can refer to pain and suffering. It can also refer to temptation. It's the same word. And you, you have to judge it by context. So count it all joy when you meet temptations of various kinds. What are we told to do? What are we told to do when we face uh, trials of various kinds. Number one, we're told to rejoice. Now, I need to spend some time explaining this because again, a lot of folks see that and say, that is just impossible. You need to understand what he means by rejoice. He does not mean, hooray, I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> Hallelujah, I just lost my job. Hooray, somebody stole my car. That's not what he means. We're not supposed to rejoice for the sake of the pain. We're not supposed to seek out trouble. This is going to be great. We don't rejoice for the sake of the pain. We rejoice for what it produces. Give you some examples. You know, uh, we, we already understand this in other contexts. For instance, if a, a, a pregnant woman says to her husband, oh, I think it's time. We need to get in the car and go. She's experiencing pain but she's excited. She's rejoicing because that means at long last, this baby's about to come, right? Now, any of you women who've given birth can say, that wasn't a fun experience, but when I knew it was time, there was a sense of excitement. I could rejoice that my baby was finally coming. Uh, when we're little and we have growing pains, I did not experience enough of those when I was young, but I, yeah, we, we, we experienced those pains and we're like, Mom, my legs hurt. Well, those are growing pains. And you go back to bed and you go, okay, well, good. Um, uh, one more. If you ever have an injury uh, and you feel it itching, you know, you get, a, you get a gash on your leg and it's itching, that's healing pain. The body is healing itself and you can rejoice in that. 
You don't rejoice in the pain, you rejoice in what the pain is producing, okay? Why should we rejoice? Well, James's word is it produces steadfastness. What is steadfastness? It's the ability to keep on keeping on. So um, I, I run two or three times a week. The neighborhood in which I live in, in which I live, is hilly. We, we live in the one neighborhood in Conroe that's hilly. And here's my, here's my mindset when I'm running. When I'm going down, downhill, I'm loving it. I'm like, this is great. I, 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 I could do this all day. And then I have to go up the hill. And, and the funny thing is, every time I run, I always think, okay, there's got to be a way to get around the uphill parts. You know, there's there's got to be a route I can take where I can skip the uphill parts. And I, I still haven't found it yet. It's like Brigadoon. It, it appears every 70 years or something. Um, in the end, I know, because I hate going up the hills. I hate it with a passion. And I know every time I manage to keep running on those uphill portions and don't stop and just walk, because I'll admit, sometimes I do stop and walk. But every time I just keep on running, I know that's building stamina in me. The downhill portion isn't building stamina. That's just making me feel good about myself. It's the uphill portion that's making me stronger. And that's what trials do for us. We don't enjoy them, but we can rejoice in what they produce. I'm not enjoying going up those hills, but I'm thankful for what it's producing in me. What is it producing in us? It's making us steadfast, which will lead to us becoming, in his words, mature and complete or perfect and complete. That word perfect means mature. Mature and perfect are, are synonyms in this case. Listen, this is important. Maturity, completeness, that's God's goal for you and for me. People talk all the time about, what is God's will for my life? Well, I don't know what his specific will for you is in terms of uh, in, in everyday decisions, but I know what God's ultimate will is for you because it's the same as his ultimate will for me, which is that we would be perfect and complete, that we would have the image of Jesus, the character of Christ. He's doing the same work in you he's trying to do in me. And if we, I, I still say, one of the keys to enjoying life to the fullest is to make that paradigm shift in our thinking from God exists to make me happy to God exists to make me holy. If we can just make that shift, we'll all be happier people. We'll all have a, a stronger faith. When we pray, is it okay to pray for things that we know are going to make us happy? Absolutely. I, mean, I, don't, I, I didn't get mad at my kids when they were little when they asked me for things they wanted. I also didn't give them everything they asked for which is why one of the reasons why I've got pretty good kids. It's okay for us to ask God for the things that we think will make us happy. As long as we understand, sometimes God is going to say no because his purpose in our lives ultimately is to make us holy. Like any good father, he wants to see his kids happy, but more importantly, he wants them to be ready to live and, and to be productive citizens of this world. So, Maturity and completeness is God's goal. That's why he allows some of this pain to come into our lives. He knows that's what needs to happen. So what are some examples? What does it practically look like to rejoice in a trial? Uh, I'll give you some examples. For one, Matthew 5, 11 through 12 says, when we are persecuted or insulted, Jesus says, you should rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. 
So in other words, we can rejoice when we go through hard times. If it applies to persecution, I think it applies to other kinds of suffering as well, because I think God's going to make it up to us. He's going to say, you know, the the rewards I'm going to give you someday are going to make any suffering you experienced on earth, especially any suffering you did on my behalf, seem minor in comparison. You're going to say, oh, this was so worth it. It didn't feel like it at the time, but now I'm so glad. I'm so glad I didn't quit. I'm so glad I didn't start walking. I just kept running. Number two, every significant moment of spiritual growth, if you really think about it, it's either... It either happened during a time of pain or it was sparked because of a time of pain. So you came through suffering and you cried out to God or in the midst of the suffering, you cried out to God. And that's when you really grew. My own example, I, my call to the ministry happened during a time of great frustration. Now, y'all all know me by now. I think you've all seen how I feel about my wife. I adore that woman more than anybody alive today or aside from Jesus ever. So I I say all that so you don't think less of her when I say this. The first year we were married was not fun for the most part. We were two very immature people and we didn't know how to live with somebody else, especially somebody else of the opposite gender. And uh, it was not fun. And I was devastated. Plus, my chosen profession that I'd trained for it wasn't happening. Uh, nothing was going right. And I was depressed and I was discouraged. And I just, I, I literally said, God, if this is the way it's going to be, just, you know, drop a bus on me or something. And in the middle of that time, I didn't know what else to do. I, I just started reading the Bible more. I'd, I'd been the read a verse a day guy, but now I started just consuming big chunks of scripture, just looking for answers. And that was the first time I really felt God speaking to me just powerfully. I just developed this incredible love for God's word. It it was no longer the kind of thing where, okay, I'm reading this because I know I'm supposed to. I was hungry for it, hungry for it. And that's when I began to realize, oh, God has a different purpose for me. And and I I knew he was calling me to the ministry. And that's a whole nother story. But regardless of the fact that he called me to the ministry, it was, I learned to love the word of God because of pain. I would not have stopped and, and d- dove into the Bible, if not for the fact that I didn't know what else to do. Many of you could share similar stories where you can think back to a time of struggle, a time of suffering, where God's presence became very real to you, where you developed some uh, characteristics of, of the Holy Spirit that you didn't have before because you figured out, okay, I've got nothing else, but I've got the Lord and he was with you. That's a reason to rejoice. When the hard times come, you can say, I don't know how I'm going to grow, but as long as I stick with Jesus, I'm going to grow through this. Uh, A third example, God may choose this moment to perform a miracle. I know this is going to sound obvious, but there aren't any miracles without pain. If there was no pain, there would be no need for miracles. If, If Lazarus didn't die, Jesus wouldn't have had to raise him from the dead. If all those people in the wilderness hadn't shown up with no food, Jesus wouldn't have had to divide the little boy's lunch. There's no, if there wasn't a storm on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus wouldn't have had to walk out on the water and still the storm. So when we go through times of pain, there are, we know that this, the conditions are ripe for God to do amazing things. That doesn't mean that every time we go through a storm that there's going to be a miracle. That's not, that wasn't even true in the Bible. But... 
we can pray and we should pray every time. Lord, I trust in you. I believe you can do amazing things. So I'm praying for you to work a miracle right now. Doctors say that I'll never get well. I pray that you would prove them wrong. You know, I, I looks like all my money's gone and I'll, I'll never recover. But Lord, you can, you can, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. So you do what you want. Pray for miracles in those moments. Just know that God knows best. Fourth reason to rejoice. This is an opportunity to show others how good God is. Because believe you me, when you go through a difficult time, every non-Christian you know is watching you. They want to see what your faith is made of. They want to see if it's all just big talk. This is an opportunity for you to show God is good all the time. And I can rejoice because I've got something that the world can't take away. You can rejoice in that. You can rejoice in saying, I have an opportunity now to witness in a way that I couldn't before. And sort of related to that, here's a fifth one. God can give you a ministry through suffering that you wouldn't have had otherwise. So I read this story uh, years ago about a man who was a missionary to a leper colony uh, in some South Pacific island. And he went there just out of a sense of duty to the Lord, but he wasn't seeing a lot of fruit. And then one day, he was an Englishman, so he's drinking his morning tea, and he spills some, and it lands on his foot, and he realizes, I didn't feel that. And that's when he realized that he had contracted leprosy. And so the next time he stood before his congregation, and he said, good morning, my fellow lepers. And they all just looked at him as if he'd made a mistake. And then they realized what had happened. And that's when his ministry changed. That's when people started coming to know Christ because they were being ministered to by someone who actually understood what they were going through. I can remember being 30 years old, being pastor of a very good church and preaching a sermon on suffering and someone coming to me afterwards very kindly. It's going to sound mean, but very kindly saying, you're 30 years old. You've got a beautiful young wife and a, and a cute little girl. What do you know about suffering? And I said, well, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. But when you've been through some trials, people don't ask you those kinds of questions. You have the ability to minister to others in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. Uh, a, a person going through a divorce can be ministered to by someone who's been through a divorce, a person who, uh, who has a child struggling with mental illness or, or a son or daughter who's run away from home. They want to talk to others who've been through that. And when you go through those kinds of things, you can rejoice and say, God is going to use this in some way to enable me to minister to others if I'm willing. And then number six, it's the catch-all category. It's the Romans 8.28. It's, I don't know what God's going to do through this. I just know that God works all things together for good. And all things means all things. So one way or another, if it's not one of those first five things I mentioned, it's going to be something good that God's going to do. I don't know how God's going to use my pain, but I know he's not going to waste this pain because he loves me too much. Any God who would die on a cross for me is not going to let me go through suffering with no purpose. I, I read uh, about a guy who was invited to a party by a member of his church party at, at her house. And so he goes over the, to the house and there's all these people and there's cake and there's music and there's, there's food and drink and all this good stuff. And he says, okay, is this somebody's birthday? And she said, no, it's nobody's birthday. This is a counted all joy party. And he says, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm, I'm going through a really hard time right now. I don't remember what the hard time was, bad medical diagnosis or something. And 
She said, you know, James 1 says that I'm supposed to count it all joy. So I'm just, I'm throwing a party. I, I don't know what to celebrate, except I, I'm just going to celebrate that, that God's got a purpose for this. And I thought, that's a great idea. It doesn't mean you have to literally throw a party. But I believe we need to take this verse literally, that we should rejoice. We have reason to rejoice. We have reason for joy that the world can't take away. How will you respond? Plan ahead. How will you respond the next time you face a trial? So that's one, rejoice when we face trials. But secondly, James says, pray for wisdom. So verse four, let me take you back to verse four, says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God's ultimate goal is we would have all the characteristics of Christ, but we're not there yet. If you're there, why are you listening to me? You should be up here, right? Not me. So in the meantime, one of the things we lack is wisdom. Wisdom is, the way I define wisdom is, it's the ability to choose the right path. It's the ability to, know, to see the world through God's eyes and to, to choose to make good decisions, to live life in a way that you won't look back on it with regret. In this context, and, and, and I got to tell you, I have claimed this promise for a lot of my life, especially once God called me into the ministry and I said, I do not see myself as a pastor. I don't know how I can do that. And so I began praying, you know, basically what, what Solomon said, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to lead your people. You have to give me wisdom, give me a discerning heart. I still pray that to this day. But in this context, it's specifically saying, if we don't know how to face a trial, we should ask God to show us how. I don't know what to do, Lord. I don't know how to respond to this. By my own nature, I'm likely to make bad decisions and make things worse. So grant me wisdom so that I can use this in the right way. Now, the unspoken thing there is, don't just pray for the pain to go away. That's our tendency. When pain hits, when trials come, our tendency is to just pray. And I said a moment ago, we should pray for miracles. Absolutely. But don't stop there. Don't stop with, Lord, take this pain away. Lord, cure me. Lord, restore this relationship. Lord, give, you know, restore what the locusts have eaten, as the prophet said. Yes, pray that prayer, but also, Lord, give me wisdom in the meantime. Help me to know what to do. And, and, and God will. That's one of the great promises is when we pray, he says, God gives generously without reproach. You know what that means? That means that God doesn't look at you and say, you know, I would say yes to this if you were a less sinful person. That's, that would be giving with reproach. I would give this to you if it weren't for that thing you said to uh, the checker at HEB the other day. If it weren't for the way you laughed at that dirty joke that your buddy told on the golf course. If it weren't for those evil thoughts you were having about that person you don't like. Well, I'd, I'd give you that if not. No, he gives generously without reproach. It's a beautiful promise. And somebody explained it to me years ago and I, I was, it was, a light came on. We have this idea that God gives according to the size of our faith. And that's not true. Remember what Jesus said? If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can make a mountain jump into the ocean. It's not the size of your faith. It is the size of the God in whom you have faith. So if you have faith in the right God, even if your faith is minuscule, even if it's weak, even if you're like, God, I just, 
I, I don't I don't see how you're going to do anything. I just know you're the only one who can. So I'm just praying to you. That's enough. You, you don't you don't impress God with the strength of your faith. You just come to Him, and then He says, "Let Him ask in faith without doubting." So again, remember the context. This isn't a promise that if you have enough faith, God has to give you what you want. Yes, you will hear that preached. I'm just believing God for that thing I asked for. You just have enough faith and, and donate to my ministry and you'll get what you've asked for. That's not scriptural. That, do we really want a God who operates that way? A God who can be bought? A God who can be manipulated? No, I don't. Thank God that's not who God is. It, it's a promise that God is going to help us know the way during our times of trial, if we just trust in him, if we don't abandon him. The shame of it is, the shame of it is a lot of Christians, when those hard times hit, they drop out of church, they stop praying, they walk away as if God has let them down. And I don't know if that's a failure of discipleship on the part of churches. I tend to think it is. Because we haven't trained our people to know that suffering is not a failure of your Christianity. It's not a failure of God. It's part of living in this world. And it's an opportunity to see God do amazing things. Stick with him. I've had people say to me, well, I know I haven't been to church, but you know, I just know that if I walk into church, I'm just going to start crying. Well, hallelujah. Yeah, we need to see that. What we don't need is, is people who are pretending to be okay when they aren't. So... Don't walk away. Come to him. Keep coming to him. Keep asking for light. You're not going to feel like it sometimes. Sometimes you're going to feel like he doesn't even hear, but keep asking. Keep calling on him. He says, anybody who doubts, the man who doubts is the one who, who says, eh, it's, it's, it's worthless. I'm not going to do it. He says, the man who doubts is a double-minded man. What does he mean by that? A double-minded man is somebody who technically prays, but his real faith is in something else. He, he, he's not really, he's not trusting in God. He's praying uh, to God as a good luck charm, but really his trust is in something else. That's the double-minded man. Don't be that. So, so I'm going to close with this. I didn't make this up. I think it's pretty genius, though. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? That's a good. You got to ask yourself the question. I'll be honest with you. If my car has a blowout on the way home, it's going to take me a while to figure out where the spare tire is. <laughs> I'll find it eventually. That happened to me once. I had a pickup truck. Couldn't figure out where that spare tire was. It took me hours, and then I found it was underneath whose idea was that? Um, but I know where my steering wheel is. I better. So is prayer your steering wheel? Are you praying about every decision you make? Are you praying about every characteristic of your character? Are you praying, uh, refusing to walk out the door in the morning before you're prayed up and making sure you're right with God? Or is it something you use in emergencies only? Good to know it's there just in case, because I think you and I both know which one is the right way to live. Now, next week, 
um, you're going to have a special guest teacher as uh, our youth minister, Michael Van Gorp, is going to do, going to take the next section of James 1. I hope you'll be here. You're going to get a treat. Michael is a very gifted Bible teacher, and he's going to do a great job. And then, Lord willing, I will be back the following week. But uh, thank you for being here tonight. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to be diligent to pray, to trust in you, and not doubt. And Lord, there are probably people in this room, almost certainly people in this room right now, who are struggling with various trials. I pray that you would help them to rejoice in the midst of that. Lord, for the rest of us who aren't, get us ready for the trials that are to come. And let us not uh, be afraid, but know that whatever comes, you're going to get us through it, and you're going to give us reason to rejoice. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.